Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the spring and summer, we're going to be doing a sermon series called Through a Mirror Darkly. The idea behind this series is that we will look at various themes that are universal to the human experience. Each week, we will take a different theme and examine a single or several different stories from the Facebook blog, Humans of New York. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today comes from Proverbs 10, verses 2 through 6. Listen to these words of wisdom. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. A child who gathers in summer is prudent, but a child who sleeps in harvest brings shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, today... We actually are going to be starting a brand new sermon series, but before we jump into that, I want to ask a question. It's a poll, if you will. How many of you in here have a Facebook account? Raise your hand. It's so passe these days to even have a Facebook account, right? I mean, come on. Why would we have it? Anybody? Like, come on. Yeah, you guys put it up. Let me see if you got it. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Do you, this, this crowd probably doesn't use Facebook super much. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, maybe you see, you get some photos of your kids on it, right? Your grandchildren, am I right? Is that what you use it for? Yeah, no. Okay, I'm not really feeling anything from you right now (laughs) at all. Okay, so anyways, this is a way of me trying to tell you that Facebook is a big part of a lot of people's lives. Uh, Whether you use it or not, it is something that a lot of people go to. More than anything, they use it to try to document their lives. And perhaps one of the people who has done that best, who has become most well-known for that, is a man named Brandon Stanton. Now, many of you have probably never heard of Brandon before, but he grew up in Marietta, Georgia. He ended up getting a degree in history from the University of Georgia. And after that, he came up here, started working in the financial industry as a bond trader here in Chicago. So 2010, he decides, you know what, I'm going to use some of this extra money that I have. I'm going to go buy a a camera. And what he liked to do is he would go out on the weekends into downtown Chicago and he would take photos of people who were down there. He just liked to photograph people kind of going about their business. And then shortly after he buys this camera, he loses his job in 
the bond markets, and he kind of falls into an existential crisis. What am I going to do? Do I want to go find another job in the financial industry, or do I want to do something else? And he decides that he wants to do photography full time, but he's not going to do it here in Chicago. He's going to go fulfill his dream in New York City. So he packs up, moves over there, living on his unemployment check and money that he borrows from family and friends. He sets a goal for himself. He's going to photograph 10,000 New Yorkers, and he's going to plot their photographs on a huge map of New York City. So this is going to be his art exhibit. Now, around the time that he begins doing this, he goes out, he starts taking the photographs, Facebook is really coming into its own. So it's 2010. They're taking on thousands of new users every single day. And so Brandon, he has a Facebook account. And he decides, you know what? I think what I'll do is, as I'm taking these photos, I'm going to start posting some of these to Facebook. And so he starts a Facebook page called Humans of New York. Now, Humans of New York becomes this page where he's just kind of putting some stuff up and it gains a little bit of traction. People kind of like it. It's okay, right? But then what he does is as he's posting these pictures, he puts a caption next to it. And once he does the caption, the caption sometimes comes from him. Other times it comes from the people who he was taking the photo of. That's when all of a sudden his stuff starts to really get passed around. And from that caption, he starts conducting full-blown interviews. Now, in 2012... That's when I first was exposed to Humans of New York. So I was a little bit late to the party. He starts it in November of 2010. It's 2012. And I start seeing these things, and I'm really taken by what he's talking about there because these interviews, he's walking up to people on the street who are random strangers, and they are telling him very personal things about their lives. He's basically able to break down all these walls, and they're just willing to be very open. They're willing to be vulnerable. And I will tell you that one of the reasons why I would get on Facebook every day is to see what new story he was posting, because they were that good. And so over time, I started collecting my favorites of all of these various stories that he was collecting, and I've kept them together. And what we're going to be doing over the spring and summer is we're going to be looking at these various stories from humans of New York. Now, the purpose behind this series, the goal of this series, is to take themes that are universal to the human experience, and then we're going to compare those themes with the stories that we see from humans of New York. Does this make kind of sense? If it doesn't, don't worry, you'll understand it in a minute anyway. So, something that I need to tell you, a little bit, a few qualifications about this. First of all, it's New York City. So he's taking photos of people who do not look like us, many of us, uh, and who come from very different backgrounds. So the stories that you're going to be seeing are going to feel very different from what you know to be true in your lives. But just because it's different doesn't mean that it doesn't relate. Because when you see these people, what you're going to find is that even though they've had very different experiences, that in fact it's like looking in a mirror, that you're going to see a reflection of yourself, a reflection that might be kind of dim, but you'll see the reflection there. And that's why we are referring to this series, or why I'm calling this series, Through a Mirror Darkly. Now, have you all ever heard of that phrase, through a mirror darkly? You heard that before? All right, that actually comes from the Bible. It's from 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and this is what Paul says. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, 
What is he talking about here? Well, in order to understand what he's talking about, you have to understand what ancient mirrors look like. So when you look at a mirror today, can you see your face fairly clearly? Yes, you can, right? But back in the ancient world, when they would make a mirror, they would use real silver, and often the silver had impurities in it. And so when the silver would set into the mirror, it was often very cloudy and dark. So when you would see your reflection in the mirror, if you were an ancient person, you were seeing a very distorted image of yourself. It was as if you were seeing a likeness of who you are, but you weren't really seeing the whole person. And that's kind of what this sermon series is all about. You're going to be seeing people who are kind of a likeness of who you are, but it's not going to be exactly you. So, The idea is every week, how we're going to start is I put together a video. And what you're going to see is you're going to see the photo of the person, and then you're going to hear the interview narrated by members of our congregation. So we had people come in, and what they did was they sat in front of a microphone, and we got them. And so what you're going to hear is you're going to see the person, hear the story, and then from there we're going to dive into the theme for the day. So even though these people are going to be very different from you, and I'm just going to say this again so that you know, what you're going to find is that these people, they have the same hopes, dreams, and struggles that all of us do. And my goal through this series is that you might walk away feeling as though you understand a little bit more about other people, a little bit more about yourself, and that you might feel motivated inside of yourself to change who you are so that you can more be like what God wants you to be because you're looking in a mirror darkly and there's a person who you see who God wants you to be and we want to become that person as much as we can be yes yes absolutely yes this side of the room okay good just making sure okay so without further ado let's turn to our first video for today both my parents were in prison while I was growing up I've been in prison for 90% of my life, mainly for drugs. When I got out in 2014, there was this old lawyer in the Bronx who took an interest in me. His name was Ramon Jimenez. He's kind of like a community activist. I don't know why he cared so much, but he sat down with me and tried to map out my life. When I tried to start selling drugs again, Ramon came out and stood on the corner with me for three days straight. Here's this 72-year-old dude shadowing me wherever I go, screaming at anyone who tried to walk up to me. I'm calling the cops! I was so mad, but after three days, I gave it up. I'm 62 now. I have three more years. I sold heroin. A lot of it. I had 40 people working for me. If you were to ask me 34 years ago what it was going to be like in prison... I couldn't have imagined. It's been the same thing every day. Everyone I care about is gone. My mother passed, my father passed, my brother and sister. If I look backwards, I'll lose my mind. I just try to keep busy and take it one day at a time. I've done every self-help program in the system. I'm the lead facilitator for the Men of Influence program. We teach behavioral skills, financial management, and entrepreneurship. In the five years that I've been in charge, we've graduated 250 people, and only one has come back to prison. I tell them, don't let me be your future. 
And if I could say one thing to everyone who reads this interview, I want to apologize for the harm that I caused. If I could go back in time and correct it, I would. But that's what I've been trying to do for the past 34 years. I grew up in the Baltimore projects. Everyone that I knew had nothing. I was trying to improve my life with the information that I had at the time, but I grabbed the wrong rope. I'm sorry if I caused generations behind me to go astray. It wasn't my intention to bring pain to the community. And I really think that when I'm released, I can be an asset to society. This is my fifth time in prison. Every crime I've committed has come from my addiction. Best case scenario is I get out of here, rebuild my life, and join the 1% of people who have beaten a meth addiction. Worst case scenario is I become no more than what I am today. And honestly, if I mess up again, I hope it kills me because I don't want to keep hurting people. I've cheated my kids out of normal lives. My 17-year-old daughter is in a home for teen moms. My 21-year-old son is in jail. My 18-year-old daughter is doing okay. She's got a job at FedEx and goes to college. She hates drugs and thinks the world is a good place and that nobody is out to hurt her. She wants to help me. She wants me to come and live with her when I get out. I don't think that's a good idea. If it wasn't for this job, I'd still be on heroin. A few years ago, one of my bosses came to me and he said, you're approaching a crossroads in life and pretty soon there will be no turning back. Then he told me, go to rehab right now and your job is waiting for you when you get back. What was the boss's name? Robert Del Pratt. In my heart of hearts, I wanted to do the right thing. But selling drugs was easy. Everyone was doing it. I mean, I'm not using that as an excuse. I made my own decisions. But I grew up around these Robin Hood figures who would sell drugs, then buy supplies for kids who were going back to school, or pay rent for an old woman who was about to get evicted. All my friends were doing it. It almost seemed fashionable. I never felt proud of it. I always thought I'd transition to a job with the Transit Authority or a job like this. Something I felt good about. But instead, I transitioned to jail. I did six years. When I got out, it was tempting to go back to the easy money. Because everyone around me was still doing it, and I couldn't get a job. But luckily I found an agency that helps ex-cons. Because there aren't many companies looking to give people a second chance. I've had this job for a few years now. You know what product I'm selling now? Myself. Everyone around here is my client. Times Square is a drug to these people. And I'm picking up all the trash so they can have the full Times Square experience. All right. So, what was the thread that connected all of those stories together? Drugs. All right. Now, all of those people who you heard from, they were either selling or using drugs. And I think we can say with absolute assurance that not a single person feels that their connection with drugs created a positive experience for their life. Yes? Yeah, right. Okay, so what we see is that for those people, drugs either threatened to destroy or did actually destroy their lives. And it didn't just destroy their life, it destroyed the lives of people around them, their family, their friends, their community. Perhaps the story that hit me the hardest when I saw that was the woman who was in prison, the crystal meth addict, because 
her story is such that she has seen the devastation of how her actions have just kind of rippled out and caused her to not even have a family. Her children are dysfunctional as a result of her addiction. And you can tell there's great shame in the fact that her addiction has caused so much pain to other people. And she wants to do better, but she just doesn't know if she can. Now, the goal of today's sermon is not to sit here and to talk about how drugs can devastate our communities, because I think we all know, right? Heroin, crystal meth, these are things that can destroy our communities. That's not really what I want to talk about today. What I want to talk about is something that was right beneath the surface of all of these interviews, something that was there but was not necessarily spoken about, which is that every single one of those people, they were living in poverty. Yes? Yes. They were living in poverty. And that drugs was an outlet of that poverty. So these people, they had no resources at their disposal. They didn't have money. They didn't have good education. They didn't have good job opportunities. And so drugs was a way for them to try to change their circumstances. Now, some of them tried to change their circumstances by selling drugs. So they made money, right, off of that. Other people... They use drugs as a mental escape from their poverty. Now, I bring this up because very often when we think of drug use, we tend to put a moral label on it, don't we? So if you sell drugs or use drugs, are you a good person? No, you're not, right? I mean, maybe you think, I don't know, maybe it's the way you feel about it. But no, generally speaking, we tend to think, no, you're a bad person. Good people don't use drugs. That's kind of how we think about it. And in fact, this type of thinking is something that we see in Proverbs. So we saw this actually in what we were talking about from Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is wisdom literature, right? It's wisdom literature. And actually, every week, you're going to be hearing from the book of Proverbs. That's going to be our first scripture reading. And you're going to understand why in a little bit. But this is what it says in Proverbs, where you hear Judy Judy read. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. What does that mean? What that means is that if you are trying to forward yourself by wicked means, selling drugs, that it's going to lead to a bad end, right? But when you looked at all of these stories from people and humans of New York, does it feel like they were morally bankrupt? No, no. The issue that you could see is that their communities were not providing them with better opportunities so that they could find a way out and better themselves. A good example of this is the 62-year-old man who sold heroin. So this guy, he grows up in the Project of Baltimore. Now, if you don't know anything about the Project of Baltimore, I would say that it's probably one of the top five worst places to live in the United States. And depending on the decade in which you're there, it could be number one. It's a pretty bad place to live. As he said, everybody who's there with him, they have nothing. And you could tell from his interview that he said, what did he say? I love the way I grabbed the wrong, what did he say? I grabbed the wrong rope, which is just a wonderful image because what's he trying to do? He's trying to pull himself up out of this. And he feels so much remorse over his choices. He looks back and he can see how the decisions he made impacted not just him, but his whole community. And this is something very important that I think we need to draw out, which is that when you're living in poverty, 
and you're trying to do better for yourself, it's hard to see all the options that are in front of you that you could use to better yourself. And I really need you to hear this. This is super important right here that you understand this because almost every single person in here is a person who grew up with resources. Okay? Most of us in here, even if you didn't, you provided resources for your children. And this is so important because when you have resources, it opens your eyes to all kinds of different possibilities of how your life could be different. The great thing about America, and this is really what makes America great in my opinion, is that there are so many different ways that you can be successful. That you can go down all kinds of different roads and you can find success in your life. But when you're living in poverty, it narrows your worldview to the point where you can only imagine a handful of ways that you can really better yourself. Because when you're growing up in poverty, you only see the people around you being able to better themselves in a couple of different ways. And one of those ways often happens to be what? Selling drugs, right? Now, you may have noticed that among all the people who you saw in here, the ones who were able to better themselves, they had a guide. They had someone who stepped in and helped them so that they were able to do better. They showed them a different path. Let's talk about a few of those because I think this is amazing. So one of the first ones we looked at was this guy right here. And remember, his boss comes to him. He's on heroin. And his boss says, look, go and get help. What was his boss's name? Robert Del Pret says, go, go do it. And this guy says, your job will be waiting for you when you come back. How often does that happen with somebody who's addicted to drugs? Not very often. Because what they say is, go get help, but you're not going to have a job when you come back. So this guy says, go, I'll wait for you. That's big to have somebody show you the way like that. The next guy who I want to focus on is this guy, the guy who cleans up Times Square. Now, he goes to, to jail for six years, right? And then he gets out and he can't find a job because that's so true. When people leave prison or jail, people don't want to hire ex-cons. So this agency helps him out and they put him there. And you can tell he's so proud to do the work that he does, that he wants to give everybody the best experience possible. And it takes somebody showing him that way because he was going to go back to drugs. But no, he had this opportunity to go in a different direction. And then my absolute favorite was the lawyer, Ramon Jimenez, right? Who goes and is on the street corner with this guy for three days, screaming at people, telling him that he's going to call the cops. And so he just gives up and he decides, okay, well, what are we going to do? And so he puts him in a different direction. Every single one of these men had somebody who stepped in and showed them a different path. They had somebody who was willing to open their eyes saying, you only see these options, but there's all these other out there and we're going to show you how to get there. And so what this tells us is that poverty creates a certain kind of blindness to positive options. That when you're dealing with poverty, it prevents you from seeing all the ways that you can better yourself. And so what it takes in those types of situations is that you need to have guides. You need people who are going to take you so that you can find a better way to improve your life. Now, this is where poverty starts to impact you. Because we've been talking about financial poverty, right? Which many of you in here cannot relate to. But there are many other types of poverty other than financial poverty. And when you suffer from them, you too need a guide in order to show you the way out. So let me give you a few different types of poverty that we can suffer from. You still with me? 
Okay, I want to make sure. All right, so here's the type of poverty that we can suffer from. Poverty of the mind. Poverty of the mind. Poverty of the mind is when you lack wisdom. So I know lots of people who have tons of education, super smart, have no wisdom whatsoever. These people have tons of information in their brains, but they have no idea how to use it right. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge and human insight to real-world circumstances. That is what wisdom is. The proper application of knowledge and human insight into real-world circumstances. So, let me give you an example of a time where I witnessed some people who didn't have a lot of wisdom. They were suffering from poverty of the mind. Not in this church. A number of years ago, I was a pastor in a church where we had to make some cuts to the budget. We didn't have enough money coming in, so I was on this finance committee, and we had to figure out where we were going to make cuts in order to make the budget work. And so I was on this committee, and I come in, and the people around the table had made a decision. They were going to cut a very part-time pastoral position. It would save them around $11,000 a year. So I sat down, and I looked at that, and I said, I think this is a bad idea. And the reason why is because this particular pastor had grown up in the congregation, was much loved by the congregation, had a lot of good relationships, and I said, I don't think it's really worth it because in the end, you're really not saving yourself that much money, and you're going to cause a lot of harm to people. Now, I was 31 at the time, and everybody around the table is much older than me. They're all professionals, and they sit there and say, oh, yeah, Alex, yeah, you know what you're talking about. Uh-huh, uh, but we're going to do it because we know what we're doing. So they make the cut. And what do you think happens? People are furious. I bet you if you went around, you could have got $11,000 from the people in that congregation. They would have been more than happy to give you eleven grand to keep her going. But they didn't do that because they were like, no, we know what we're doing, right? And I remember the head of staff came to me and he said, you know, Alex, I think you were right about that. I think uh, maybe this really was a people issue and we should have focused on that. I'm like, yeah, well, you think with the blowback you're getting, you probably would realize that now. But the fact is you have a lot of knowledge, but no wisdom of how to use it. Another good example of a way that we can be impoverished is in our attitude towards people. So here's the thing. We're all prejudiced. There's not a single person in here who is not prejudiced in some way or another. Now, those prejudices, they work themselves out in different ways. Some of us are prejudiced towards other people, particularly in terms of their value. So many of us, what we want to believe or we want, what we think is that we're looking for people who look like us, talk like us, act like us, espouse our own views. That's what we want. Those are the people who we cling to. Now, that's a very tribal way of looking at the world. And it can actually prevent you from seeing the potential and the value of a person sitting right in front of you. So, can you all tell me, I'm going to give you examples. Can you tell me who this is? Oprah. Very good. Okay. This is Oprah in her early days. This is back when she, from in the late 70s, early 80s, she was... Uh, evening news reporter for WJZ-TV in Baltimore. Now, do you know what happened to her? She was fired from that channel. And the reason why she was fired is because she would become emotional when she was reporting her stories. And the producers came up to her and they're like, look, your job is to report the facts. Your job is not to get emotional 
when you tell these stories. So they were being tribal. They were thinking, we want you to be like all the other reporters. They could not see how this innate connection she had to people could be an asset. So they let her go. So she leaves, and then a couple years later, ABC Studios here in Chicago picks her up and gives her her own show. And now Oprah, I don't know if you heard, she's like a billionaire. (laughs) So here's the deal. You can see the people who you want to see. You can have this prejudice towards people, but it prevents you from seeing the value of that person, particularly if you are impoverished in your attitudes towards them. But perhaps the greatest way that we can be impoverished and the way that tends to affect most people is called poverty of the soul. Poverty of the soul is when you are disconnected from the heart of what brings life to the world. Now that's a strange saying, right? So let me parse that out for you so you understand that. What brings meaning to us as human beings is our connection to other people and our connection to our environment and our surroundings. Would you agree with that? Is that what brings us meaning in our lives? Yes, those two things, people and surroundings. And that connection is found in love. And we believe as Christians that our love ultimately comes from God. So if you are disconnected from love, if you are disconnected from other people, then you are going to suffer from poverty of the soul. And perhaps one of the greatest symptoms of poverty of the soul is that you feel this unquenchable emptiness that follows you wherever you go. I can tell you that in my time as a pastor over the last 10 years, I've had more and more people come to me and sit down with me and say, Alex, is there something wrong with me? Everything in my life is going well. I have a good job. I have a good family. I'm around people all the time. Everything should be going great, but yet I feel like there is something missing. I feel like I'm floating. I feel like I can never really establish a connection with anyone or anything. So there's all these people who have been coming to me and saying, on the outside, everything seems to be going well. But on the inside, they're severely struggling. And the more people who came to me, the more I came to realize there was a pattern going on. That no matter how wealthy, no matter how well off, no matter how affluent, no matter how it seemed that everything was going for you on the outside, that you can be very much like those people who we saw from Humans of New York. Yes, they are two different ends of the financial spectrum, but both suffer from poverty of the soul. And so I've come to a realization, which is that we are living in a time where we are experiencing an epidemic of people who are starved for love in their spirit. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. We are experiencing an epidemic where people are starved for love in their spirit and in their souls. We are so disconnected from the people around us and from our surroundings, that we don't even know how to love properly. We don't know how to love ourselves. We don't know how to love others. We don't know how to love the world. And when you feel that emptiness, and you don't know what to do with it, the only thing that you really can do is numb it out. And so how do they numb it out in the humans of New York? What do they do? Drugs. But we drink, right? Drinking is a drug. You can do that. You can numb it out in a bunch of other ways, though. You numb it out through sex. You numb it out through food. You can numb it out through exercise, through television, 
through the internet, through your phone, through video games, through all these different ways that we will numb ourselves out. Whatever staves off that feeling of emptiness that follows us wherever we go. And in my opinion, this emptiness is a sort of sickness that comes from a lack of love in our souls. And I think this is why Jesus says in the scripture that we read this morning, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, in this verse, he's talking about himself as though he's a physician. He's come to cure you of a sickness. I think that sickness is emptiness. And he's come to cure the emptiness of sinners. Now, that word sinner, right, is an interesting word. Because when we think of a sinner, we have moral connotations around it. Like the drug dealers, right? Drug dealers, drug users. Those are bad people. They're sinners. That's actually not entirely the full context of a sinner. A sinner is somebody who has turned their back on God and walked away. You can be a perfectly good person and have done that. But when you walk away, what happens is that the distance between you and God increases and the connection between your spirit and God's spirit becomes thinner and ever more flimsy. And the more that happens, the more acute that feeling of emptiness becomes. So in my opinion... The cure for poverty of the soul, the cure for this emptiness is a spiritual solution. There's nothing that you can do out here. There's nothing you can buy. It's something in here that you have to change. And that's part of the reason why the church exists. The church exists to facilitate that connection between you and God. And that's part of the reason why I became a pastor. I became a pastor so that I could help you create an opportunity where you can get to know Jesus so that you can be healed of that emptiness. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I really believe that Jesus points the way to God, and God is how we get to know unconditional love. And it's through that unconditional love that that emptiness gets ushered away from our lives. Are you following me? Does this make sense, what I'm saying? All right, so I'm going to say, I'm going to end this morning with this. If you suffer from poverty of the soul, and many of us do, If you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, that sounds like me, Alex, don't feel like you're alone because there are many, many, many people who feel this way about their lives. If you feel that you suffer from poverty of the soul, then my hope is that you might be willing to turn to Jesus so that you can be healed of that emptiness. Now, if you're sitting there saying, yeah, that does sound like me, I don't entirely understand what you're talking about, this whole turn to Jesus thing, which I get, because that can sound very trite, right? Like, turn to Jesus, it'll all be better. No, come and see me. Because this is something that I really care about. It's why I'm here. It's why I became a pastor. I want to help you get rid of that emptiness in your life. And so my prayer for you today is that you might turn back towards God, edge ever closer, so that you can experience God's unconditional love and usher away all of that emptiness you feel in your life so that your soul might feel peace and love and so that you might experience the richness and fullness of life that God expects us to have. We can do this together, but if you remain alone, you will continue to suffer alone. We're here for you. The door is always open. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.